That was a rather weak amen. I need another amen there. Thank you. Don't get me angry already this morning. Good morning, everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to jump around a little bit in this passage this morning, but we're going to focus on verses 6 through 12. Uh, I know I don't complete the whole thought there in that paragraph, but we're going to jump around a little bit, and you'll see why in just a moment. We're concluding our sermon series on stewardship, and we remember that we briefly defined stewardship, which is our responsibility to take what God has given us, everything, Right? God doesn't give us just some things. He gives us everything and give it back to him. Now, it's a misconception, really a, a cheap way of talking about God when we talk about tithes. Certainly, tithe is a biblical concept. But the reality of the cross teaches a new message message of giving our entire lives to God since he has given his life for us. So we talked about giving to God all of our time. That time does not belong to us. It belongs to God. Every heartbeat in our chest belongs to God. Every moment, every thought belongs to God. So that there's not some for us and a little bit for God but all for God. We talked about our, our talents. And we talked about the spiritual gifts that God has given every Christian. We also talked about just the, the gifts that God has given to every human being that is to be given back to Him and to be used for His service. We think about our, our musicians who display a talent for music, a talent I do not have. I cannot play an instrument to save my life. But they are very gifted. And we're very grateful that they use their talents for God's glory. Today, we're going to talk about stewarding our treasures for God. Our material possessions for God. Our money for God. You know, the unfortunate reality that we find ourselves in in America is that we as Americans are crammed between two cartoon character realities. We find ourselves either as a Scrooge McDuck swimming in our pool of money, hoarding it all for ourselves, or we're wimpy who will gladly pay you never for a hamburger today. It's just the truth. We either have a lot of money, the rich getting richer and not sharing what they've been given, thus the need for greater and greater taxes, or as one statistic tells us, over 70% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their savings account. We've been poor stewards of our money, Americans. Or stewards of our money. We either have and don't give, or we take and don't have. And that's a bad reality to find ourselves in. And as a church, my prayer is that we will be above that dilemma, that dichotomy of bad stewardship. This morning, I want to challenge you to neither be a miser or a debtor, or in debt, I should say, but a steward of God's treasures. Here's our definition this morning of what we're driving at. Godly stewardship of our treasures amounts to our giving it all back to Him rather than our keeping it all for ourselves. If you forget everything I talk about this morning, remember this. Godly stewardship of our treasures amounts to our giving it all back to Him rather than our keeping it all for ourselves. 
Let's pray. Father, you've withheld nothing from us. It's one thing to live in a country where we are free. A country where we feel entitled to complain that we are without electricity for a week. A country where we feel entitled to complain that we have to eat food that's not hot. To think nothing of the fact that you did not withhold your very son. What treasure is there greater than one's own son? Lord, we are so blessed in this country. And we are so poor with our spirituality. Would this morning, Lord, that you would show us how to steward our money that you have given to us that does not belong to us, that is to be used for your kingdom, for your glory, and to not withhold from you because you, God, have not withheld from us. God, create in us an understanding of you that you're not there in heaven waiting to zap us when we fail to give our tithe but to see you as the perfect example of the giving God. You do not ask us to give what you yourself have not already given. It's why you, God, are unlike any God. There is no God like you. And we see this, that you love the world so much, a sinful world, a world that hates you, a world that rebels against your law, a world that spits at you, that hates what you give to them. You would give your son to this world. What can we give back to you? Lord, you have given so much. Your word tells us you love a cheerful giver. In the knowledge of what you did for us on Calvary, let us be cheerful as we give our treasures back to you. Amen. Let's look at our passage really quickly. I'm going to jump to two portions here first. And then I'm going to get to our main passage. I want to first look down, if you would, at chapter 9 and and look here at verses 13 through 15. It's important to understand that what we're going to talk about this morning is influenced by our theology. What is theology? It's the study of God. Theology, better to understand this, is what the Bible tells us about God. Many of us make empty statements about who God is because those statements state truths that are not founded in God's word. God is the one who reveals himself to us and we are at the mercy of his own personal revelation if we are going to say anything meaningful about God. This morning, we're going to talk about giving back our treasures to God, but we want to understand how our understanding of God or our theology influences our stewardship of treasures. So so look down at that bottom verse here and verse 13. Paul says, by their approval of this service, this is 2 Corinthians 9, 13, by their approval of this service... They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them all and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is the inexpressible gift of God? You know, we are very blessed in this country. Poverty in America relative to poverty around the world is richness around the world. 
So that when Paul says, though, that the inexpressible gift, he's not talking about the fleeting things of this life. I mean, we just learned last week, at any moment, God can speak to the wind and whip it up in such a fashion that it can take the strongest of homes right off their foundations. Listen, health, wealth, and prosperity, gospel lovers, God's inexpressible gift is not a Beamer, Benz, or Bentley. It is not a bigger house. It is his son on a cross crucified for you. That is an inexpressible gift. It's one thing to get rich and buy a mansion for your mother. It's another thing to give your child to those who don't deserve it. So what influences what we're about to talk about this morning? A a subject that many evangelical pastors are nervous to talk about with giving and and encouraging and and exhorting the church to be good stewards of their money. A subject that causes many uh, to be concerned. What influences this is the reality of God's gift to you. So before we even begin to talk about this this morning, we have to keep in our minds what is the impetus for giving back to God our treasures. Let me give you the historical context. Look up there at verse 9-1. We're going to read through down all the way to 6, and then we're going to get to the meat of what we're driving at this morning. So here's the historical context. Paul says, now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has already been ready since last year. The ministry that Paul is talking about is the action of taking up a collection of money and giving it to a relief effort that's going on in Jerusalem. On Paul's third missionary journey, he was going to be traveling around to the Gentile churches to make a collection for money to relieve some kind of financial problem back to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. What's fascinating about this is you see already the interplay of cultures early on in the church. That Gentiles would be financially responsible for Jews is a beautiful depiction of the gospel of impartiality. It's beautiful. We don't know exactly what happened. Some think that quite possibly the relief effort was for the persecution that Jewish Christians were experiencing back in Jerusalem. And Paul was saying, you Galatian Christians, on the other side of the world for all intents and purposes relative to their inability to travel in those days quickly... You have a responsibility to minister to them. And the ministry here is financial. Verse 3. says, but I am sending the brothers. He says, I know you've been ready. Achaia is the province where Corinth lies. It's the southern part of Greece. He says, but I'm sending the brothers so that... Our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Paul's saying, listen, it is one thing to say you've got money and you're going to help out. It's another thing to put your money where your mouth is. Literally. I'm going to send the brothers. He says, otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me, and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Paul says, I know you said you had the money. We're going to send brothers to make sure. Because what's at stake here is how the church cares for one another and its own churches is a representation of how much they love God. Paul says, your lack of stewardship is going to reveal to the church or to the world that you don't truly love God like you say you do. It would be humiliating for us to show up as it is today for us to be bad stewards of our churches. It is humiliating when churches are not good stewards of their finances. When the people do not give to the church. It is an embarrassment. 
And Paul says, I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift. Paul says at the beginning, you know, it's superfluous to me to write to you because I know you're going to give anyway, but I'm going to verify. I trust that you're ready to give, but I'm going to verify. Because Paul knows, like we all know, that we live in a fallen world. And there is oftentimes a disconnect between, between what we say and what we do. I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. All right. Here's our passage this morning. Verse 6 through 12. Paul now says the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. When Paul begins a passage with a therefore, we should always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? This morning he begins with, the point is this. Look at the last verse we just read in verse 5. It says this. I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul is connecting this passage, this verse 6, with verse 5. The, the little title that's in most of your ESV Bibles that says the cheerful giver is not in the original manuscripts. And his point is this. Christian, your giving does not come out primarily as a responsibility, but as a heart that loves to give. It is not about your 10%. The point is this. Paul says, I'm not coming as an exaction. An exaction was like when a tax collector comes to you. At the end of every year, you and I both know you have to pay income tax. Right? Two things are never going to change. You're going to die and you have to pay taxes. Those two things are never going to change. The government does that as an exaction. And I've seen you around April. None of you are happy. None of us are happy that we have to pay income tax because it's taken as an exaction. We have to do it by law. If you don't pay your income taxes, the government's going to come and beat down your door and say, by the way, isn't it interesting that the government always shows up when it's their money they want back? Should I say our money they want? It'll take forever for you to get that check, but they want it by April 15th. That's an exaction. But God is not the cheap United States government. He wants his example of what he did for you in Christ to be enough compulsion to get out of his people what he's given. In other words, he wants his people to look like he looks. I tithe because my parents tithed. I, that means I gave 10%. I'm using that word. I want to make sure everybody understands what that word means. The word tithe is a word for 10%. We give 10% of our income. Some give 10% of their pre-taxed income. And dad taught me as a young man that we tithe. He did it, and I'm going to do it. And that we give. That was what he taught me. And so when I'd mow the grass for $10, cheap, Dad, cheap. That was back in the day, you know. He could get away with that. $10, I had to give a dollar to the church. I had $9. You can't buy anything for $9. $9.99 is everything. I had to wait till the next two weeks to mow the grass for a second time to afford one $10 item. But dad taught me how to do that. 
And I'll be honest with you, for many, many years, giving to God was grudgingly. It was taken as an exaction. And to say, well, at least I gave is not enough. Because Paul says very early on here, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly, the law of the harvest, if you only reap a little bit of seed, you're only going to get a little bit of crop. You're going to get a lot to harvest back. But whoever sows a lot of seed is going to get an abundance. The point is that. And then he says this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. How many people must give in God's church? Each one. Well, it's not just the rich. Each one. One of the greatest problems in America is that 50% of people don't pay anything into our nation's economy. Well, they're too poor to pay. And they're often the biggest complainers. Pay nothing and demand everything. People say beggars aren't choosers. That's because you don't know any beggars. You live in Weston. (laughs) Every beggar I know is a chooser. God says, everyone pays in. Each one. And then someone says, well, the New Testament doesn't command tithe. No, it doesn't. You're right. It commands a heart that acknowledges the gospel of what God has given to us. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. That is, we force you. Some churches would even require their members to pay a mandatory fee because they think it's like a country club rather than an actual body. When the Bible uses the word member, it doesn't mean country club member. It means like digits on your hand. And God says, nope, I'm not going to be cheap. You've got my spirit in your heart. You understand what I gave to you. Then give like that. Not out of compulsion. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word is the word hilaros, from which we get our word hilarious. It doesn't mean that that we laugh when we give. It just means that the joy that comes in from hilarious laughter is the same joy we should have when we give. Instead of when we're writing our bills at the end of the month, we say, okay, here's 10% to God. Ouch. Or not do anything at all. It is to say that our giving is an act of worship to God. God, when I give this, I know you're gonna, it's going to please you. It's going to be a beautiful aroma to you. I'm going to give to you money, and you're going to love it. You're going to enjoy this, and I want to please you because you've given to me, and I love to worship you, and I want to give back to you, and I'm not earning your favor. You're not going to love me more. I'm not going to get a bigger mansion in heaven. I'm just going to give back to you because you've given me everything. Thank you for this privilege to give away my money. What a privilege. He says, I love a cheerful giver. I love someone whose heart's right because I look right past what you do with your hands and I penetrate your heart and I know whether or not you want to give that money. That means that some of you who are giving money may not be worshiping God even in your tithe, even in the money that you do give. You may not be worshiping God. And those of you who aren't giving anything are in danger of saying you don't even understand the gospel. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. In other words, God is able to give you everything that you need materially 
to abound in his work. Wow. Think about that for just a moment. It's never in doubt that what you have can be used for God. Whatever it is you have. If you have little, use, use what you have for God. If he gave you 30 or if he gave you 60-fold or somebody's given 100-fold, you give back to God. He gave to one man five talents. He produced five more. He gave to another two. He produced two more. But to the one whom he gave one talent, it's so interesting, and this is so true. Again, I go back to my point about those who are beggars, those who have little. They are often the ones who put in little. The one who had one talent buried it and did nothing with it. That was the wicked tenant. God is giving you whatever he's given you to be used for his kingdom. It says having all sufficiency. It's complete. In all things and at all times that you may abound in every good work. That you may take the money you have and not sit on it like Scrooge McDuck. But you may abound in good works with it. As it is written... Whenever you see that phrase, as it is written, know that he's about to quote scripture and say, this is absolute truth here. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Jesus says he gives to the poor this way. He begins his beatitudes by this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for he has given to them the kingdom of heaven. I know you don't think you have enough this morning. I don't think there's anybody sitting around here saying, oh, I've got too much. I just got to get rid of it. Most of us are living to paycheck to paycheck, and we think we don't have enough. The scripture tells us, blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. You are rich if you have Christ this morning. Amen. And if you have earthly wealth and you have not Christ, you are poor. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. We have to have a right understanding of who the supplier is. We think it's our brilliance that got us this hefty paycheck. It's God who gave you the brilliance to get the hefty paycheck. And it's God who can take that job away at any moment. What does he call him here? The supplier. He is the one who supplies seed, i.e. money to the sower, i.e. the one who takes his money and uses his money for good. Supply and then multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of what? Your righteousness, not your wealth. That what you use for God is 100% going to be a perfect investment. There is going to be a 100%, if not more, return on investment. It's going to be a bounty because the one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And you will be enriched in every way. How? To be generous in every way. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Your ministry of giving away, of, of using your money and using your treasure for God does not only honor God with worship from your own life, it brings about more glory for God in the life of others. Would that when we give of our time, our talent, our treasures, men would look right past us and glorify God. It is a waste of glory if men glorify you instead of God. 
And scripture tells us here, what does it do? It's a twofold ministry. Yes, you are rich. Yes, you've received the blessing, but so too do others because they will thank God for the ministry of this service is not only in supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. The whole earth, both the giver and the receiver, are rejoicing that God has blessed them when we obey by giving of our treasures. It is a way we produce much worship. The Word of God tells us that the heart matters when it comes to giving. Let us be obedient in giving. I want to give you five points as we close this morning, five application points on our passage. Number one, I believe this passage teaches us the blessing of living below your means and not above your means. Live below your means and not above your means. Godly stewardship of our treasures means living below rather than living above them. And someone's going to say, what if I just live equal to my means? That's fine. If you think that's what the passage teaches, let, I, I, I hope you're convinced in your heart. But the passage says, the one who sows, how? Bountifully. Reaps bountifully. If you want to be the steward who lives at an equal, if, if you went, in other words, if you want to go to the bank and they say, I got two options here, three options. One, you give very little, you're going to get nothing in return. The other one is, you give exactly what you have and you're not going to get anything. This is a, a no interest savings account. My dad used to say, just take your money and put it in a jar on top of your refrigerator. If you want to give an equal, if you want to, give, if you want to live the equal life instead of, a, 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 instead of giving, living below your means so that you have more money to give to God, God says, okay, fine. Or the third option, sow bountifully, reap bountifully. It's just good economics to give more to God. How do we do that? We have to live below our means. Let me give you some investment advice this morning. Giving to God's work is the only sure thing. Don't hear me saying this morning that if you give God a hundred, he's going to give you back a thousand. Instead, hear me saying that God has given to the poor his kingdom. What more can you give to him? I'm also not exhorting you to be fiscally irresponsible. Scripture says a good person leaves an inheritance for his children's children. But the inheritance is more than money. It's the wealth of God's son. And for what will it profit your children if you leave them thousands of dollars and not the knowledge of honoring God by giving that money back to him? It is wrong, people when we have no money at the end of the month to give to God because we've given to ourselves. It, it, listen to me. It is sin. It is sinful when we live above our means so much so that we have no money to give to God's work. Don't say, I can't give to the ministry and then jump in your bends when a Chevy Cruze will do just fine. Here's what the Lord says in Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came. In other words, this really happened. The word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this 
house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. In other words, you've given it all to yourself and there's been little reward. You bought iPhone 6 and before you got it home, iPhone 7 came out. And it was already obsolete. You sow much and you've harvested little. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Wow. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. In other words, if God wants an economic crisis on America, he can bring a housing crisis by the end of the day. It's not to make light of 2008. It is to make big of God's power. God is a jealous God. And when we reap sparingly, we, when we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly. And the only thing that is sure in this world financially is giving to him. Number two, give from what you have. So not only do you live below your means, not above them, give from what you have. John G. Miller in his book, Question Behind the Question, challenges individuals to take responsibility over what God has given them. He says, we must learn to make a difference with what we already have. Many of you have already said to yourselves this morning, if he only knew how little I have, he wouldn't be asking. Or if he only knew how many bills there are at the end of the month. Or I'm not rich. Let the other guys pull from their bank accounts. But note that Paul's words are for whoever and each one and not merely for those to whom giving comes without a burden. I am not preaching burdenless giving this morning. Giving to God's work, giving your treasures to God's work is burdensome. But to the one who sows sparingly, he will reap sparingly. And to the one who sows bountifully, she will also reap bountifully. It's a mistake, however, to focus on when we're going to be reaping. The next question that we ask is, okay, if I give this money, when am I going to get it? Am I going to get it today? Am I going to get it in a, in a month? When am I going to get it? The, the point of the passage is not the when, it's the who. It is the sure thing that I have given my money to God and his work and am guaranteed by his words that it will reproduce a bountiful harvest of righteousness. God doesn't show us the end at the beginning. He tells us to trust him. And he will give to us when he chooses. I can say this, I know that at least when you die, you will reap the inheritance of his kingdom. I make no promises about giving away a hundred this morning. You might give a hundred in the offering plate today and get home and have a bill for 300. God doesn't operate on this cheap law of karma. He says, you either trust me or you don't. I have heard stories of people in this church who didn't know where their next meal was going to come from and they gave. 
This very building was built by people who took out second mortgages on their home to build it. Who of us would do that today? We reap the benefit. That's trust. There is no promise this morning that you're going to get it back in this life. But you get the reward of knowing that you've given to God's kingdom and that you've obeyed. Give from what you have. Number three, don't be afraid to sow bountifully. Scripture tells us if you sow bountifully, you're guaranteed to reap bountifully. The word bountifully means that your gift greatly exceeds the social expectation of what a person should give to a cause. That's what bountifully means. It exceeds the social expectation of what a person is supposed to give for a cause. Everyone knows that for Christmas you're supposed to give your pastor a tie. This year, give him a whole suit. I'm kidding, by the way. I know I'm going to get a suit. Don't, get, don't do it. Somebody will do it. I'm just kidding. Give it to our ministry. I mean that. Everyone knows you're supposed to give the homeless guy your spare change, but why don't you feed him instead? Carry clothes in your car and give him or her clothes. Have little McDonald's gift cards in a track right above. So if you don't want it, you say, I don't want to give them money. They're going to waste it on, on drugs. Fine. Give them $5 gift cards from McDonald's. You know at the very least, if they use that to exchange it for drugs, that eventually it's going to buy somebody a meal to the glory of God. Don't be afraid to sow bountifully. Trust God. Everyone knows you're supposed to give $5 to the Hurricane Relief Fund, but spend a day in your neighbor's house clearing debris. Take them food so bountifully. The point is, the person who sows bountifully is the one who goes above and beyond the bare minimum of what is expected of them. The reason, though, why we don't sow bountifully is because our faith is weak. It's probably more true than most that for the American Christian, our faith is weakest at the point of our pocketbooks. For you young kids, that's your billfold or bitcoins. That's where our faith is weakest. Oh, yeah, we believe in God, absolutely, amen. Uh, how you doing today? Oh, I'm blessed, brother. Yeah, you're blessed, great. Yeah, I went to church this last Sunday, and we caught the Holy Ghost, great. Yeah, did you tithe? Oh, I got bills to pay. Americans, listen to me. Your faith is weak there. That's the point where the rubber hits the road. Because money gets us everything in this world. We know the song, cash rules everything around me. I'm glad only a couple of you laughed. You hush. Cash rules everything around us. And so we don't give it away. But don't be afraid to sow bountifully. God promises you will reap a bountiful harvest. The 19th century preacher, R.C. Chapman, once said, There are many who preach Christ, but not many who live Christ. My great aim, said Chapman, will be to live Christ. And live Christ, Chapman did. Alexander Strock tells the story of how Chapman lived Christ. His friend, he and his friend William Hake were once visiting in South Devon and had just had enough money for two railway fares back to Barnstaple. They were in England. During their visit, they needed to separate, so Hake gave Chapman money for his return fare. They met later, and Hake, knowing Chapman's habit of giving money away, asked Chapman if he still had his fare. Our father knows all about it, Chapman answered. 
Suspecting that the money was gone, Hake repeated his question as they approached the railway station. There, Chapman confessed that he had given the money to an elderly lady who was not feeling well and could use it. Well, what are you going to do now? Hake asked with some agitation. Chapman simply replied, our father knows all about it. As the train pulled up to the flat platform, a friend ran up, apologized for being late, and gave each of them more than enough money for their fare. I'm not guaranteeing that this will happen to you in the exact same way. What I am guaranteeing you is nothing, that there is nothing more sweeter than what the Holy Spirit-inspired words of Holy Writ are guaranteeing you this morning. If you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. I don't know when. I don't know how. Trust that our Lord's words are true. Number four, enjoy sacrificial giving as an act of worshiping your heavenly Father. Paul tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. The New Testament giving is less about duty and more about worship. He tells us in verse 5 that the gift is not an exaction, that is an owed tax, but it is a generous gift that pleases the Lord. The heart is what God looks at, more than the gift. But the gift is the evidence that the heart is right with God. Listen to what scripture says in 1 John 3.17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let me ask you that question. How does God's love abide in you when you care little for God's work? How does it? I've had to ask myself the very question. How can you preach like this and do X, Y, and Z about God and not care for God's work with your pocketbook? Enjoy, though, the sacrificial giving as an act of worshiping your Heavenly Father. Finally, number five, seize God's provisions for good work. Paul tells the Corinthians that God has made us sufficient to fulfill good works for others at all times. God is the one who gives the material possessions to you. But he gives you your material possessions that you may increase the harvest of his righteousness. In other words, use your possessions to bring glory to God. Look at what the passage says in verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Paul's point is that our giving expands the reaches of the gospel and produces greater glory for God throughout the world. The implication is that when we make giving about us rather than about God, we get the glory rather than Him. And this, as we have already said, is a waste of glory. Dare I say, idolatry. I can only preach to Americans this morning. Those of us who have lived in the land of opportunity. So my appeal to you then is as fellow Americans. Of course, it's as Christian brothers and sisters who live in America. But I want to make this appeal to you. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Are you not rich enough this morning? Do you still have need for more? Has the Lord not blessed you with so much already? Are you trying to keep up with the Joneses or are you satisfied in Jesus alone? What more do you want? Has not God already supplied you with everything in Christ? To say nothing of your material blessings that he's already given you in this life? Americans, we are rich in this present age. 
and I mean that monetarily. But we, as American Christians, are also heirs of the king's riches in heaven. I understand that many of you are not rich compared to the standard of living in America, but to the rest of the world, we all live high on the hog. American poverty is relative to the standards of comfort that our Lord has graciously blessed this nation with. For everyone who complains about our country with their mouth, we all know that with their hearts, God truly has shed His grace on thee. Therefore, it is without fear of contradiction that I say that this passage that I'm about to read is for every single person this morning. Paul leaves Timothy with these words in Ephesus. And I leave these words with you. As for the rich in this present age, all of us, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You are to do good, says Paul. Charge them that they are to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous. That means financially generous and be ready to share the storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. American Christian this morning, if you are holding on tightly to your money, you are missing the bounty of God's righteousness. Let's pray. God, you have made us rich in Christ. It is incomparable, the gift of your Son. We are sinners, guilty, and the deal you made with us is bring me your sins and I will give you my Son. We are rich in you. But beyond that, God, you have given us many, many earthly riches as well. God, help us to steward what you've given us for your kingdom. Lord, let us think this morning deeply as we drive home. How are we giving to your work? Many of us, Lord God, as a church are excusing our lack of giving while our homes are beautiful, our cars are beautiful, and we're in debt. Father, it is my prayer that our church would be fiscally responsible and that we would take our material treasures and give them back to you. Lord, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. You have to change our hearts. Change our hearts, Holy Spirit. Amen.